Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, and we're going to just go to the end of the chapter, which ends in verse 22 there. You can follow along on your little sheet. Paul writes this, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, and that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is God's word. Uh, If we could, I just want to pray for a second and then we'll we'll jump in and take a closer look at it, all right? Uh, Father, I pray that in these next few moments, you will uh, help us as we focus our attention on this passage. I pray, Father, that you will come, uh, send your Holy Spirit to come and to teach us because we know and you know that we have no hope of understanding what this means unless you come and teach us. So please uh, come and do so now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In May of 2008, there was a news story that received global attention. Uh, And the story was about a woman who lived in Croatia. She lived by herself in a small apartment. And the story was she came home uh, from a long day of work, made a cup of tea, sat down, and then died of natural causes. And you wonder, okay, why did this story receive such global attention in the way that it did of just some some woman who died back in, in, uh, who was found in 2008? You want to know why this received so much attention? It's because she died in 1973. No family looked for her for 35 years. She sat there dead in her apartment. No, no neighbors reported her. It was unbelievable. It's a story of unbelievable loneliness. And the reason why the world responded in anger the way that it did was because everybody knows nobody is supposed to be that lonely. Where you live for 30, or where you're dead for 35 years and nobody on the planet even notices. The reason that the world was angry is because they know that you aren't supposed to be that lonely. And you know that too. But you still feel it though, don't you? I mean, this is why some of you check Facebook 85 times a day just desperate for some form of human connection or validation, right? This is why some of you 
hate being in large groups like right here tonight because when you're in the middle of a room like this, this is when you feel the most lonely. Some of you hate going home because you know that your family completely misunderstands you and doesn't understand you and it's in that context that you feel actually the most alone. Or if you've if you ever had this experience like on a Friday night where you're just sort of sitting around don't know what to do and you just sort of assume everybody else is out there having fun and you're just waiting on somebody to call you and invite you to come along. You know what I'm talking about? The Bible explains, and you know from your experience, that we were made, we were designed for community. We were designed for relationships with one another. And the Bible also explains why we all feel so terribly lonely and isolated from each other every now and then. It's because of this thing called sin, which fractures and and breaks up our relationships with each other. But the great hope of the Bible and the great hope of the gospel is that Jesus is reconciling people to himself as well as people to each other. Jesus is restoring the possibility of community. And the Bible calls that new community the church. Now, before you just fall asleep at just the word church... I I, want to take just a few moments while we look at this passage and see what Paul is doing as he is painting this picture of what the church really is. And you can follow along in your little uh, handout there, your little outline. But the church uh, is three things that Paul's going to show us. The church is a community that is defined by peace, (laughs) described by intimacy, and derived by the cross. See that preacher trick there? They all start with D. Um, (laughs) Okay, so I just want to look at these one at a time, all right? The church is a community that is defined by peace. If you look in verse 11 through 13, Paul is addressing Gentiles, people who are not ethnically Jewish. And he's saying, hey, remember that point when you and Jewish people had crazy sort of hostility with one another? Because historically, these two people groups did not get along. I mean, picture in your mind... um, uh, blacks and whites of like 1960s civil rights movement in this country. Picture uh, Jews and Palestinians in the Middle East today, or maybe in our own country today, conservatism and lib- conservatives and liberals. I mean, th- there's just two groups that do not get along. There was fierce hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And so he's, he's inviting the Gentiles to remember, okay, remember all of those invisible social walls that were thrown up as well as actual physical, visible walls that were thrown up to keep y'all separated. Here's just a little sample of what he's saying in verse 12. He says, Remember, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world, but now. And then he goes on to explain how the gospel, something has happened. This thing called the gospel has come in and has brought these two people groups together. Once where there was war and hostility, there is now peace. That word peace that Paul is kind of sprinkling throughout this whole passage, this is not referring to just sort of an inner, calm, serene feeling. This is referring to like a peace treaty, meaning the war is over now. The walls are down, the war is over. And so about this thing called peace, Paul gives us just a few images And so I just want to look at two of them. Here's the first image. The image of a new relationship. Look at it in verse uh, 13. Again, he says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Do you hear that spatial language of near and far? That's Bible talk for relationship. Meaning the people of Israel, 
These were God's people. They were near to God. They got the law. They got the covenants, all that stuff in the Old Testament. Jew, uh, Gentile people, y'all are out on the margins. Y'all are kind of on the edges. But something has happened. Picture in your mind uh, a bicycle wheel with a hub in the middle. And if you were to, you know, with all the spokes kind of centralized into the hub, and if you were to kind of run your finger along the spokes up towards the hub, as your fingers are getting closer to the center, your fingers are also naturally getting closer to each other as well. Your fingers are getting closer. And so he's saying, those who are far away, Gentiles, those who are close, because of Jesus, y'all have been brought near to God, and that, by definition, triggers a whole new relationship with y'all. Not just you getting closer to the hub, but you getting closer to each other as a result. Does that make sense? You have a new relationship. That's the first image. Here's the second one. A new identity. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. You see what's going on? There are two different people groups before that have now merged into one new humanity. Jews and Gentiles, that is no longer their primary distinctive thing about them, if that makes sense. It's not their Jewishness or their Gentileness that really matters now. That, those distinctives have been obliterated. They are now one in Jesus. So, Verse 15 again, it says, His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. He's talking about your identity. The thing that really makes you, you. Because what Jesus does is he doesn't come in and change their Jewishness or their Gentileness. They're still ethnically Jewish, still ethnically Gentile, right? He just changes the way that they relate to their Jewishness or their Gentile. Let me, let me try and put a little texture on this, because this may be hard to wrap your mind around. I am a white male, believe it or not, <laughs> and uh, I can't really change that. In fact, when Jesus comes into my life, he doesn't really change that either. I mean, I'm, as a Christian, I'm still a white male, I think, and um, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't plan on changing that, but what he does is he changes the way that I relate to my whiteness or, or the way that I relate to my maleness. That is no longer the primary identification trait that makes me who I am and makes me feel better about myself and therefore superior to other people. Because think about it this way. If, uh, if I look to my whiteness as the thing that makes me feel good about myself and therefore makes me feel better than other people that aren't white, what that does is that generates hostility. And that is not peace. Pride in my whiteness degenerates into racism. Or if I were to look to my maleness and, and, make, and have that be the thing that makes me feel good about myself over and against all of y'all that are not male, that creates hostility. And that is not peace. Pride in my maleness degenerates into sexism. And so what Jesus does is he comes in and gives you a new identity. All of the other distinctive features about me get demoted. And the primary thing about me is that I am a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus. And therefore, I am united in the, in the same exact way to anybody else who's willing to do that same claim. That is the primary thing. Everything else gets demoted. So we can look radically different and yet be utterly united because of the peace that Jesus has brought of this new identity, right? Here's what this means. If you are a Christian in the room tonight, you are white and black and Asian or whatever second. You are public school, private school, homeschool, second. 
your conservative, liberal, whatever else, second. You are in the Greek system or not in the Greek system, second. All those other things that out there in the world create the hostility, create the division inside of the church should be relatively minor. Those walls have been broken down. We have a new uh, relationship with God and with each other. We have a new identity ourselves. This is what it means when it says that the church is a community defined by peace. The walls are down. But you know, as well as I do, that we love to keep throwing those walls back up, right? Let Let me ask you this. Are you somebody who is working to keep those walls down? Or are you somebody who is building them back up? Let me give you a few tests just to see kind of where you are with all of this. Here's the first test. Are you friends with all different types of people? Or do all of your friends pretty much just look like you? If you're a Christian in the room, (laughs) don't know why that got that response, but... If you're a Christian in the room, how about the way that you use language? The way that you use language. Do you use insider language and Christian jargon so that all of your non-Christian friends looking on think it's unintelligible and can't make any sense of what you're talking about? That's throwing up walls. Or if you're with a group of friends and you have your kind of tighter group of friends within this bigger group of people that you're all hanging out with and y'all are just dropping inside jokes and therefore making everybody else feel like total outsiders and losers to what y'all are really talking about. Or what about clicks? How are we doing in that department in here? As far as, as far as having these little walls that you create, say, this is my friend group, and you're going to have to work really hard if you want to bust into this, where we exclude people. Or what traits do you see in another person where you would just automatically rule them out from wanting to be their friend? Because my guess is for a lot of people in the room, those traits that if somebody doesn't live up to are if they're not cool if they're not attractive, and if they're socially awkward, they get instantly written off. That is throwing up walls. But the church of Jesus, we say no to those walls. We are are done with that. We put down our passive aggression, and we put down our sarcastic jabs uh, to hurt each other in a funny way. We put down all of that because we are done with it. That's what this is saying. The church is a community defined by Peace. How are you doing with that? Here's the second thing. Paul, Paul says it's not just a community defined by peace, but, but you know, what, is this, what does it look like on the ground level? I know some of you may be looking at me, okay, Matt, this is all very ethereal, new identity, new humanity. What does that mean? What does that mean practically? Well, Paul goes on and says the church is a community described by intimacy. I just want, I want to look at this next. What Paul does is here, he starts busting out different images, three new images to try and capture this idea of what it means that the church is an intimate community, and each one of these images gets more and more intense. So, okay, just follow along with me. Here's the first image, the image of being citizens. Verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people. When you become a Christian, you become a part of a new nation within another nation. You are part of the kingdom of God within the kingdom of America, the country of America, right? And so what what happens, what binds people of the same social district together is, is social values. And so that's what binds 
citizens of the kingdom of God. And here's what this means. That means that you have more in common, if you are a Christian, with another Christian who may look very different from you. In other words, if you're a Christian and you are very active politically on the left, if you're a very active Democrat and you call yourself a Christian, you have more in common with a Christian who is a very politically active conservative than maybe with your non-Christian friends who are themselves in your Democratic Party. You, have, you, you are united to them, to the Christian and the other political party in, in such a deeper way that you could ever be united with your friend in, in your Democratic Party. Does this make sense? This is hard to believe. This is hard for me to believe. But it is true. You are united to them in a deeper, more intimate way. That's the first image, the image of being citizens. The second image gets even more intimate, the, Im- the, the image of being family members. He just finishes his thought in verse 19. He says, and members of God's household, right there at the end of verse 19. See, the second image gets even more intimate because with, with citizens, the thing that binds you together is social values, but with family members, the things that binds you together is family values, meaning you're hanging out all the time, and you're eating together, and you know a lot about each other. In the first two centuries of uh, the early church, when, when the Christian church was kind of getting going, the outside world, looking in, thought Christianity was a sex cult. And here's why. is because looking in, they saw the way that Christians were relating to each other uh, with, with such affection and love and intimacy. They really just assumed that when they got together behind closed doors, they were just having orgies. That is what the, the, the early, peop- early onlookers of Christianity were writing and seeing. They just didn't realize that the early Christians were trying to take seriously what it means to be family members with each other, trying to love each other in this sort of way. That's the second image. Here's the third. Bricks in a temple. It's a pleasant image. Okay, verse 21. It says, In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. First we are citizens, then we are family members, and now we are building blocks. Building blocks that get stacked up onto each other and create a temple in which God himself says that he dwells by his Holy Spirit. You know, a lot of times in the Bible when it says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, you know that most of the time it's talking about the church corporately? The church itself is the body of Christ in which God himself dwells? Don't merely individualize this. This is saying, if you are Christians in the room, you are building blocks cemented together, interdependently connected to each other. You see how intimate this is? So here's the question. How can you look at these three images as they get progressively more and more intimate and connected, sort of the images of intimacy and connectivity and interdependence, and not go to church? How can you square these images and just sort of show up at church every now and then? Or maybe just for our own little community right here in RUF, although this is not the church, but many of us are members of the church, popping into RUF and then just bolting after the last song or you know, showing up every now and then. I don't, I don't think that you can square these images of intimacy with that kind of involvement. This is saying involvement in the community of Jesus is intimate and it's uncomfortable sometimes. 
You get known in such a way that is uncomfortable. I, I recently heard this quote by Jimmy Fallon, and uh, here's what he says. He says, I read that 72% of 18 to 29-year-olds consider themselves more spiritual than religious, or in simpler terms, way too hungover to make it to church. <laughs> I like that. Um, Listen, if you hear one thing tonight, you have to hear this. You cannot get to know God, and you cannot get to know yourself by yourself. You were made for community. You cannot get to know God, and you cannot get to know yourself by yourself. This stuff about going into the woods and spending time with Jesus as a substitute for being with the people of God, that is not Christian. The stuff about uh, sleeping in and then just downloading a sermon and thinking that's going to church, that's not Christian either. An internet church, which I hear actually exists, that's not Christian. That's not church. That is selfish, individualistic consumerism. That's what that is. You will only know God and you will only know yourself to the degree that you allow yourself to be intimately threaded into the lives of other people. People. So what does this mean for you? Practically, go to church. Become a member somewhere. Find a church and figure out what their needs are. Volunteer, volunteer in a nursery. You know, find out what their needs are and then go meet them. Or for our own little RUF community right here, get involved in a small group. If, if a small group doesn't fit your schedule, start your own and invite your friends to come. Because you will not be known and you will not grow as a person or as a Christian unless you are intimately involved in the lives of other people. Or you can start in a very small and simple way by just introducing yourself to somebody new tonight. Because it takes a very long time to be known and to know other people. So start right now. There's lots of different campus ministries and and we're all on the same page about this. And so I'm just going to say it because it's about this time in the semester where it needs to be said. This is about the point of the semester where you need to be picking one campus ministry. The reason we say that is not so just we just get to hoard our our own little people. (laughs) But because if you're involved in three campus ministries and show up at this and this and this every single week, you're going to know this many people about this thick, about this deep. Pick one spot and jump in and get, and get involved and get plugged in and let people know you and allow yourself to know other people. My wife, Catherine, loves camping. And uh, it worked out great for me because I inherited, when, when we got married, I got to inherit a bunch of sweet camping gear. Like I got a, a, a really cool uh, camping uh, backpack and pretty sweet uh, um, sleeping bag. And she herself has these really... Uh, what she says, w- wicked Gore-Tex hiking boots. Um, you know how many times Catherine's been camping? <laughs> zero. <laughs> like in 20 years, zero. Oh. <laughs> she just loves the idea of camping. <laughs> she just wants the camping stuff. It looks cool. But when it comes down to actually camping, it's, 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 that's not fun for her. College students love the idea of community. We love that word, community. And you know it's so much harder to actually do it because that means loving your roommate. As annoying as they are and as much as they bring their girlfriend or their boyfriend in the room constantly and have their dirty clothes everywhere, that's what it means to be in community. 
is to love actual people. Are you loving just the idea of it? Or are you actually loving people and being involved in community? And listen, before we go on to the, to the last point here, I know for a lot of you, you have just been deeply wounded by the church. And you've been in church experiences where you don't ever want to go back. And I get that. I really do. And there's no other way to put it other than that really sucks. And I'm sorry. But the, tr- the Bible doesn't give you another option, though. It doesn't give you wiggle room to say, okay, you get a, you get a free pass. Find, find a different church. I can rec- I'll recommend different churches for you to get involved in. The pastor of a church right here, Scott Fuller, goes to Grace Highlands. Meet him. Great church. Go to his church. Find a place. I know that, that, I know that if you've had a, a, a bad church experience, you are not interested in going back. The Bible doesn't give you another option, though. So here's the last thing. We, we've said that the church is a community defined by peace and described by intimacy. And I know a lot of you are like, okay, how in the world do I find a community like that? That is that peaceful and is that intimate? Where does that come from? Here's where it comes from. It, it is only derived by the cross. Here's the last thing I want to look at. We'll just look at this briefly. Because I mean, you see this all throughout this passage. Uh, the cross is the thing that generates and creates a community like this. Verse 13, it says, You have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Uh, verse 16, it says, To reconcile both of them to God through the cross. Very clearly, the cross is the thing that generates and creates this sort of community. And what I want to do is I just want, you to, I just want to highlight two ways that the cross does it. And then we're done. Here's the first way that the cross generates this kind of community. First is it it destroys your pride. Here's where I get this from. Verse 14. Uh, Read it again with me. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Okay, how? How, Paul? How does he do that? Verse 15. By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Okay, whoa, what does that mean? Paul is zeroing in on the ceremonial aspect of the Old Testament Jewish law. And by that I mean stuff like circumcision and dietary laws and sacrificial stuff. And he is saying Jesus has fulfilled all of that and therefore now all of that stuff is abolished. This is why, Christians in the room, when you go to church, you're no longer chopping up lambs and sheep. Jesus is done with all of that. He's saying Jesus has fulfilled this and therefore it is no longer necessary. He's not talking about the moral law in the sense of we don't have to keep the Ten Commandments anymore. Woo, party, do whatever you want. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the ceremonial aspect of the law has been fulfilled and is therefore now rendered obsolete. Let let me take another stab at it this way. The thing that makes people clean in the sight of God is now no longer having to go to a Jewish ceremony. This is saying everybody becomes clean in the sight of God the same way, through the blood of Jesus. What the cross does is it levels the playing field of humanity and says it does not matter if you are Jewish or if you are Gentile, you are all the same. You are all sinners in the need of a Savior. It looks at your pride and begins to destroy it because it says it doesn't matter. Everybody. doesn't matter if you're a conservative or if you're a liberal. It doesn't matter if you're black or if you're white. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or you're Gentile. Everybody's the same. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. Remember I said that the church is a community defined by peace? What is the number one threat to peace? It is pride. 
pride in your distinctive identity factors. Pride in the fact that this is what makes me feel superior and you inferior, and that's what creates the hostility. But the cross comes in and destroys that. <coughs> says, you are all the same. Welcome to the sinner's club. That's what the cross does, is it destroys your pride. That's the first thing it does. And here's the second thing. The cross destroys your fear. Verse 16, it says, uh, And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He put to death the hostility. Now, what does that mean? Well, I didn't know either, and so I got help from one of my um, sources. Uh, I mentioned him last week, one of my uh, favorite uh, preachers to listen to, Tim Keller. And here's how he puts it, and this was just help, really helpful for me. The way that he puts it is, okay, what was, what was it that died on the cross? There was only one thing that died on the cross, and it was Jesus. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, another passage in the New Testament, says this, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It says God made him who didn't have any sin to be sin. What does that mean? Did God make Jesus sinful on the cross? Did he make him prideful? Did he make him self-centered? No, Jesus didn't become sinful on the cross. Jesus was treated as sinful on the cross, meaning it was your pride, and it was my pride, and it was our self-centeredness, it was our hostility that died on the cross. And so when you begin to see your hostility as the thing that is being slain on the cross, that begins to slay the hostility in your own heart. In other words, you can now work on your remaining sin and be honest about your own junk, not from an insecure position of having to earn God's favor, but from a secure position of already having God's favor. Remember I said that, the, that, the, that uh, the church is described by intimacy? What is the number one threat to intimacy? It is fear. Fear in being known. I mean, this is, this is why we hide, right? This is why we lie and we dodge questions and we kind of bend the truth and we name drop, and we kind of do whatever else because we're afraid that if somebody really knows me, they're not going to like me and they're going to judge me, right? This is why we put up the masquerade that we do. But what the cross does is it comes in and says, listen, the only judgment that really matters about you has already been decided. And because of Jesus, it is the verdict of righteous, forgiven. And therefore, if that is true, that, that your sin has been objectively dealt with, and the only judge that really matters has already pronounced you as accepted. This gives you now all the freedom in the world to put down the walls and put down the masks and to come out and be open and honest about who you really are. Here's who I am. Here's my mess. Here's my addictions. Here's my struggles. I don't care if you judge me because the only judge that really matters has already spoken. That's what this is saying. Intimacy is now created and you can finally be real and honest with each other instead of having to kind of one-up each other in this stupid competition that we do with each other. The cross is the only thing that creates peace and destroys your pride and creates intimacy and destroys your fear. But let me wrap up with, with a, a, a true story to try and just kind of tie all of this together. Um, there was a man named John Perkins, who was a black man in the Deep South, and he grew up in the 1940s and 1950s in like Deep South Mississippi. If you know anything about our country's history, it was a very racial, hostile environment. And his brother was shot and killed 
by the town marshal unjustly and was let off scot-free. And so what John Perkins did after being mistreated his entire life is he just left Mississippi, fled to California, fueled on anger and hatred, vowing never to return back. So while he was in California, at this point in his life, still angry and frustrated and hating his white oppressors back home, he met Jesus. And he became a Christian and was converted. And what God did is Jesus led him back to Mississippi in 1960. And so John Perkins heads back right into the middle of that war zone for him. And he sets up shop and says, okay, I'm going to start working on the healing and the reconciliation of this messed up and hateful place. And so what he did is he had little Bible clubs with neighborhood kids. And he would uh, create lower income housing for the people in the projects there. And he'd create health centers. And, and he'd be outside uh, having these Bible clubs with these, with these kids and, and white people would drive by in their trucks waving their shotguns just to let John Perkins know that they knew that, that, that they didn't approve of what he was doing. And so one night, John Perkins was abducted. He was beaten beyond recognition. He was tortured. They, they, they shoved a fork up his nose. But what he did is he vowed to stay there. The love of Jesus had so transformed his heart that he said, I'm going to work on bringing love right in the middle of this place of hatred. And what he did is he joined forces with this dude named Thomas Terrence, who began working alongside of him to sort of rebuild all of the hatred and the racism in Mississippi. And here's the, here's the really crazy thing. Thomas Terrence was white. And Thomas Terrence had been involved for years in the KKK. And here they were, working right alongside of each other because for Thomas Terrence, Jesus had come into his life as well and turned his world upside down. Now, how in the world do you get a white, upper-class KKK activist to be friends with a lower-income black man in Mississippi in the 1960s? Only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel does do that. Two people that had hated each other, that wanted nothing to do with each other, are now defined by peace and described by intimacy. And this is only derived by the work of Jesus. And this little story is just one little snapshot of the millions and the millions of things that Jesus is doing as far as forming a new humanity together from people who previously would have nothing to do with each other. He's doing it all over the world and he's doing it right here on this campus. And the question is, do you see it? But more importantly, the question is, are you participating in it? Consider that an invitation for you tonight. Please uh, pray with me. Father, I pray that um, the gospel of Jesus, that the cross would come in and totally rearrange the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we, that we think about others. I pray that it would turn our hearts that are self-centered and arrogant into hearts that are humble and eager to love and to serve those that we may have nothing in common with on the outside. Father, would you do that? Would you create um, a, a new community and a new humanity right here in this room and on this campus? For the glory of your name, we pray and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.